0: Now, I don't know about you, but when I visit a location that has been well-trafficked by people, a metropolitan area, for example, I'm always very aware of and hyper-focused on what my hands touch. I try my best to keep from turning doorknobs or pulling door handles or if I ever find myself on public transit, whether it's a bus, or a subway, or a go station, I try to keep my hands from taking hold of any of the things that are available to me to help me keep my balance, preferring instead to use my limited surfing skills to navigate the stops and the starts of the train or the bus. If, though, I do end up having to open a door, I can't use my foot to push it or pull it or something. If I do happen to grab a railing, then my focus shifts from trying not to grab onto things to how do I keep my hands from touching my face or my eyes or my mouth until I can wash them or sanitize them. That's because I get really focused on the dirt and the supposed defilements of those places where thousands, nay, tens of thousands of hands with varying degrees of cleanliness touch, turn, hold, grasp or cling to whatever it is that my hand is supposed to touch. I used to feel the same way about birthdays. As I watched in horror regularly as we for some reason, unbeknownst to me, practiced the tradition of watching someone with a cake in front of them that has candles on it, take a big lung full of air, let it roll around in their lungs, and then move their face toward the cake and blow that air with reckless abandon all over that poor birthday cake in front of them as onlookers cheer. Yay! Clapping their hands for the event. And then, if the candles don't go out the first time, we repeat the process again for a second time. Breath is blown all over the cake and a barrage of shorter, more intense gusts all over this cake. All over this confectionery. And then we portion off that breath and spittle covered cake <laughs> and serve it on a plate for our consumption. One thing I've appreciated about this past two years is that tradition is probably gone. Yeah, I can enjoy birthday cakes. Now, these are some of the uncleannesses that are in my mind. I don't know what it is that you have a difficult time with, what it is that you find repulsive. These are a couple of my own examples. But whatever it is that you find unhygienic, whatever it is that you find grimy or contaminated or have a difficult time with, I want you for a second to take those feelings. Think about the thing that repulses you the most. I want you to take that particular thing and multiply it by at least 100 And then you will begin to understand how a Jew thought of Gentiles during the days of Jesus Christ. They thought of Gentiles as dirty, defiled, spittle-covered cakes, German-fested door handles. They thought of Gentiles as unclean dogs, and they hated the Gentiles, and they assumed that the God of heaven and earth, the great God of heaven and earth, hated them also. But as Jesus withdrew from the historic borders of Israel, like we learned last week, into the region, the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, searching for rest and searching for replenishment from his exhausting ministry schedule, Jesus revealed the complete opposite disposition toward the Gentiles that the Jewish peoples had. Jesus revealed compassion and he revealed pity and mercy to the Gentiles who came to Him in droves for help and for healing. And that's good news for us, isn't it? Because Jesus still overflows with grace and with mercy to any of us, to all of us, who turn to Him in faith. His mercy overflows to anyone who turns from their sin and repentance and turns to Him in trust as Lord and Savior. And we see this compassion of Christ first in chapter 15 verses 21 to 28 when he showed compassion to the Canaanite Canaanite woman who came to him begging for his help. She asked him to to help her to heal her severely demon-oppressed daughter. And then Jesus remained in these Gentile areas for the next three days teaching. If you look at chapter 15 verse 29, it says, Jesus went on from there. And walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain, and he sat down there. That phrase, he went up on the mountain and sat down there, is uh, Jesus settling into the common teaching posture for a rabbi in those days. And so as Jesus taught, verse 30 tells us that great crowds came to Him, bringing to Him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at His feet and He healed them. And this great crowd in question, these are Gentiles. Crowds that would have been an absolute vulgarity to any Pharisee or any religious leader in Israel at the time, but not so with Jesus. As they are brought to His feet, He heals them. He touches them. He helps them. He shows compassion to them. Sorry. We learn in verse 32 that He spent three days with these crowds. And in so doing, He set before the disciples, one, a preview of their future ministry to and among the Gentiles, Anticipating the growth of the kingdom to include Gentiles, something that the Lord would make crystal clear to the Apostle Peter when we get to Acts chapter 10, when the Lord reveals to Peter in a vision a a blanket filled with animals and said, Do not think of what I say, don't say what I say is clean is unclean. And Peter understood what that meant in Acts chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, when he said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So these are previews of that future day in the ministry of the apostles when the Gentiles would have the gospel preached to them. Or when anticipation of the days when people from all over the world would, will, bow their knee to King Jesus and enter in. Or as Jesus has already quoted from Matthew chapter in Matthew chapter 12 when he said this, he quoted from Isaiah saying, "Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and in his name the Gentiles will hope." But for now, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, his primary focus is on the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he made clear with the Canaanite woman. But even though this is his primary focus, ethnic, national Israel, here in this section, Jesus will take a few days to feed the Gentiles with the crumbs of blessing that fall off the the children's table. And for any Jewish leader, any rabbi of the time, this ministry to the Gentiles by Jesus represented a marked departure from the norm. To show compassion to these Gentile dogs. To spend any prolonged time among them. The very idea of touching a Gentile or being in their midst would send shivers up any religious leader's spine. But we're talking about Jesus here. Gracious, merciful Jesus when he visited the places that would make a Pharisee's skin crawl, he showed compassion. He showed compassion to the residents in those areas and he welcomed every single one of their sick, every one of their afflicted, healing every one of them without any hint of loathing or disgust. And he remained in this region three days, repeating what in Gentile territory, the same things that he had done for the Jews in the Jewish areas. But how did, here's what Matthew wants you to see, how did these Gentile crowds respond to Jesus in contrast to the Jews to the same miracles when Jesus did them in their territory? Well, before we get there, I ask the question, how did these Gentile crowds hear about Jesus if if he's never been to those cities before? If you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 4, Christ's fame had spread throughout all Syria and great crowds were following Jesus from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And the crowds that followed him around, because there were some from the Decapolis, it means that they were comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And they followed him around as he ministered in historically Jewish regions. But there were Gentiles from the Decapolis there, and it is likely that these Gentiles were the ones who went and spread the news of Jesus' arrival in Tyre and Sidon, which led to great crowds forming, and they brought people to him for healing and help. And that crowd started from just a small few group of people, and it swelled up to over 4,000 men plus women and children. And all of them watched for three days as Jesus healed the lame and healed the blind and healed the crippled. And as these Gentiles watched Jesus do these amazing works, they were absolutely astonished by him. They were awestruck by him. They were amazed at everything they had witnessed from his hand. And as a result, look at chapter 15, verse 31, they glorified the God of Israel. Gentiles, they, these Gentiles, glorified the God of Israel. They, these Gentiles, acknowledged the God of Israel as the source of the healing power possessed by Jesus. What did the Pharisees say was the source of the power possessed by Jesus? They said it was Satan himself, right? But the Gentiles here, they recognized that it is the God of Israel who empowers this man, and they esteemed and exalted his name. Now again, here, contrast the Gentile response to the miracles and signs of Christ with the response of the Jews. You see, the Jewish crowds also followed Jesus when he was ministering in the areas of Israel. They saw the same miracle. But I don't know if you've noticed, as we've worked through Matthew, it's rare. It's actually only once, and that's before the Pharisees start getting in there and really slandering the name of Jesus. It is only once that we are told that the crowds glorify God as a result of Jesus' ministry in the borders of Israel. And that's in chapter 9, verse 8. But after that, once the Pharisees start slandering Jesus with increased hostility, we start seeing accusations of Christ being in league with Satan. We see people following Jesus around because they think he is their meal ticket. We witness people getting offended by him or at him and running him out of their town. We see people conspiring against him as to how they might destroy him. We see Pharisees teaming up with the Herodians. who They were enemies. They had held grudges and suspicions and hatreds against the Herodians, but here, but in the in their hatred of Jesus, that superseded it all. And now, in chapter 16, verse 1, look at who the Pharisees team up with. For the first time, they team up with the Sadducees. So while the works of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus in the Gentile region, elicits the glorification of the God of Israel by the crowds, the same miracle in the Jewish regions great against the pride and inspire the envy of the religious leaders. And Matthew really wants us to see this contrast. As the Gentiles praised the God of Israel, and here, as they did so, look what Jesus said next in verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. You see, when Jesus fed the 5,000 just a few days earlier, it was the disciples who came to him and said to him, in 14 verse 15, The day is over. Send the crowds away. But this time Jesus knowing the disciples' proneness to calling on him to dismiss people or to send people away, to take care of themselves, Jesus preemptively called the disciples to himself and revealed to them, I feel compassion for these crowds. Meaning, I feel great pity for these crowds. I feel great sympathy for these crowds. Sympathy that greatly moves me to alleviate their need. And what was their need? With the 5,000, they had been with him in this desolate place all day. And so when the disciples asked Jesus to dismiss them, they knew, the disciples knew that these crowds could go into the village and just buy food for themselves. But this crowd of Gentiles, do you see how long they've spent with Jesus? Three days. They've spent with Jesus, and chances are, when they heard that Jesus was entering into their regions, they fled from their house, not carrying backpacks filled with bread or food. They fled. I got to get to this man. I got to put my lame or my crippled relative in front of him so he'll heal them. So they didn't. Pro- they probably didn't pack that much. But here they are, and here they remain with Jesus for three days with no food. I remember in my early days of ministry, I used to hear people complain at length about the length of my sermons, and not just me, the length of other pastors' sermons too. I'm not the only one who preaches a long time. Because they simply wanted whoever it was preaching to shorten their sermons so they could get home for lunch because they get hungry at precisely noon. Now, this is an idea that would look foreign to what we're reading here today. These people were willing to go two days at least without food to spend time in the presence, to remain in the presence of Jesus. And where did they sleep? They slept out in this desolate place at night. So not only are they hungry, but they got a camp. They didn't have tents back then either. Well, yes, they did. Paul was a tent maker, they did have tents. And Jesus knew that to send them away now, as hungry as they were, might lead to a number of them fainting or collapsing or giving out on the way home. That's what he said, right? Lest they faint on the way. And he was unwilling to let that happen. And the disciples' response, they knew exactly what he was getting at. I'm unwilling to send them away. So they ask, well, where are we going to get enough food Bread in this such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd. Now what's wrong with that question? Oh, how quickly we forget, right? How easily we forget the past faithfulnesses and provisions of the Lord because our present circumstances are difficult. There are times... Like how easy it is to depend on the Lord when he meets our needs in the moment. And then how easy it is to forget those past provisions in the face of new circumstances that arise. These disciples had already, just a few days earlier, seen and witnessed Jesus feed a larger crowd. And here they are. Where where are we going to get food? Where are we going to get food? All throughout Scripture. We see that humanity is shown to not be able to see past their immediate problems, immediate difficulties, and immediate circumstances. The things they are experiencing in that very moment. Oh, how easy it is for you and I to rest on the Lord when He is figuring out our problems right then and there. But have you ever noticed how quickly that trust in the Lord flies out the window how quickly our remembrance of his great and marvelous and mighty works fly out the window when some relational problem, or some financial problem, or some physical problem, or some societal problems arise. All of a sudden, we are now laser-focused on this issue and we forget how faithful God has been, not just to us in our lives, but how faithful He has been to all of His people for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The disciples did the same thing. They had just witnessed Jesus do this exact miracle see, there are times in your life, there are times in my life, and when you're out there ministering and witnessing to people, there are times when you will probably hear people say, if only I could see some sort of spectacular sign from the Lord, if only I could witness some sort of dazzling miracle, some undeniable work of God in my life, then I would possess a greater faith, a rock-solid confidence in Him. But Scripture corrects this misguided idea and reveals to us that we have the greatest difficulty simply moving past the immediate situation of our lives. What have the disciples witnessed so far in Jesus' life and ministry? What have they seen as they've walked with him over this last while? They have watched Jesus heal the sick They have seen the blind and crippled being healed over and over again. And here in this Gentile wilderness, these disciples have been watching Jesus heal people for three days. And yet, here they are still wondering how Jesus will feed all these people coming to Him. How He will give them food so that they don't faint on the way home while they're in this desolate wilderness. These Israelites are mirrors into our own identity. They also remind us of the Israelites in the wilderness. So you can see, it's just a consistent, persistent weakness in humanity. You remember the Israelites in the wilderness, right? Think of everything they saw. They witnessed from the hand of our glorious, all-powerful Lord ten crushing strikes leveled against Egypt. Egypt. They witnessed the pillars of smoke and fire leading them, protecting them, continuing in their midst as they traveled throughout the wilderness wanderings. They witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. They witnessed the destruction of the Egyptian army. And yet, even after seeing all of this, as soon as some problem arose, something in their lives that was immediate, it trumped everything else. For example... As they traveled through the wilderness, they got hungry. And the text tells us in Exodus 16, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hungry hunger. The grumbling of their stomachs seemingly made them forget everything that the Lord had previously done for them. And even went so far as to make them look fondly upon their old life in Egypt. Their old life in Egypt was one of slavery, difficulty, the crushing of their spirit. And yet they have this revisionist history because they're hungry... And they want to go back. But the Lord in His mercy responded by feeding them with manna from heaven. Then again, when the people experienced some thirst in the wilderness. Again, the current immediate trial made them forget the past faithfulnesses of God. Again, they forgot all the spectacular signs and wonders that God had performed for them and on their behalf. And instead of trusting Him to provide once more, which the Lord has proven faithful to do over and over and over again, we read in Exodus 17, the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so our faithful and patient Lord once again in miraculous fashion brought forth water for them from, of all things, a rock. There's no water in rocks. It was a miraculous work of the Lord. And again, the people watched as the water came flowing out of the rock and they all drank from the water. And yet, even though the people had watched the might of the Lord at work in delivering them from the hand of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time, When the Lord told the people to go up and take the land of Canaan, when He told them and promised that He would fight for them, that He would deliver the land into their hand, the people's fear, their immediate fear, stunted their faith. And so instead of obeying in trust, the people said this, sadly, in Numbers 14. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land? This is what the Lord had promised them all along, and now they're right there. And the Lord has shown over and over and over again that he is faithful. And when they get to the borders and the Lord says, Go! Take it! It's yours! They say, Why is the Lord bringing us here? Because they're scared. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And in their fear, these same people picked up stones and were about to kill Moses and Aaron with them. Moses and Aaron, the obstacles standing in the way of the return of unfaithful Israel to what they understood as the good old days in Egypt. And again, even though the Lord provided for them over and over again at the instigation of a few women from the land of Moab, the men of Israel fell for these women, and as Numbers twenty-five one says, they hoard after them, hoard with them, and as a result, they turned from the Lord who had been so faithful to them, and bowed down to the gods of these women, yoking themselves. The text tells us with the god, with their god Baal, in order to appease not. Some momentary need, this time it's momentary lusts and desires, in order to appease their momentary lusts and desires, in spite of all that the Lord has so clearly and visibly worked for them by the arm of His power, Israel chose sex and idolatry over the Lord. Sadly, this is something that still happens among professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today. I want you maybe this week, if you're not working through any sort of Bible reading plan, just take a read through Deuteronomy over the next month. And I want you to highlight as you read every time the Lord tells His people Israel to take care to do everything I've commanded to beware and be careful to do everything that I have commanded. And you will see how the Lord, our Holy Lord, relentlessly called on Israel and on us to take care and to be careful to keep His commandments. You see, our God, our wonderful, holy God, is not a God to be trifled with. He is not a God who conforms to the cultural moods and human situations. He is not one <clears throat> who conforms himself to us. And even with this being the case, one does not have to look far before we see gatherings of people who call themselves churches who follow Israel's example of whoring with the Moabites rather than being careful and aware of doing everything that the Lord commands. Groupings that choose the cultural views of sex and idolatry over careful observance to the, whole, to the whole Word of God with wholehearted devotion. It's a consistent human temptation to forget God's faithfulness, to forget God's power, to forget God's faithfulness in times of trouble. But I want you to know this. One of the great avenues for confidence as a Christian one that is repeatedly held out to us in Scripture, is remembering and reminding ourselves of two things. Especially when immediate needs and strong passions rise up in you and threaten to derail you as they did the Israelites in the wilderness. Because don't make any mistake about it. We, like the Israelites, can sometimes think, well, God, what have you done for me lately? When it comes to our relationship with the Lord, remember first that God is faithful. And this is an attribute that he repeatedly reminds us of throughout Scripture. As he said to Moses, for example, in Exodus 34 The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And second, remember all the ways that God has cared for you. Remember all the ways that God has supplied you in the past. Remember all the ways that He supports you in the here and now, each and every day. This is something, when you read the Psalms, you will see that King David was very good at this. In the midst of all of his trials and all of his troubles, he always, he had a a tendency to repeat to himself the past faithfulnesses of God in order to give him confidence in the present. Psalm 9.1, for example, we see that David gives thanks to the Lord with his whole heart as he recounts all of the Lord's wonderful deeds. Recount all of the wonderful deeds of the Lord in your life in the circumstances that you are currently facing and remember that he is faithful. Remember the many and manifold blessings that you and I enjoy every single second of our lives because it's easy to forget about God's abundant mercies and His gracious gifts when, we, when our focus turns on what we lack in the moment or what we think we deserve. God provides us with what we need all the time. In His faithfulness, whether he supplies us with the physical resources that we are asking for in the here and now, or if he withholds those resources in order to develop in us a stronger faith and devotion to him, or if he simply takes your life and brings you to his very presence where you will enjoy blessings that will make everything you worry about right now pale in comparison to the joy of beholding him, whatever it is, God is always faithful. And like these disciples in this wilderness, once again, they are confronted by a crowd that Jesus will miraculously feed with only a few meager supplies. And like them, we must look to Christ. We must trust Christ. We must remind ourselves of who God is and how he has worked in our lives thus far, and we must continue to trust him in the midst of our trials and troubles and problems that he is overseeing them. Even if it seems impossible, he is sovereign and he is overseeing them. But again, the disciples here, they don't come to Jesus and ask him to provide. Last time at the feeding of the 5,000, you might, be, you might give them a pass, because maybe they didn't know such a feeding was a possibility. They'd never seen it before, but this time they know that it is. They had just witnessed it a few days earlier. But Jesus, being gracious, he didn't rebuke them. He simply asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they responded, seven and a few small fish. And so once again, as he did before, he directed the crowds of Gentiles to sit down on the ground And he took the seven loaves of fish, gave thanks, broke them, gave them to the disciples, who in turn handed them to the crowds. And look, every single person in the crowd, verse 37, man, woman, and child, they all ate and were satisfied. Meaning, their stomachs, there was so much bread that all of them ate and their stomachs were filled to satisfaction. And after the meal, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftovers. And Jesus, showing his compassion for these Gentiles by making sure that they were all strong enough to make it home and anticipating a future prolonged ministry to these Gentiles, he sent them away, he got into a boat, and he went to the region of Magadan, back to historic Jewish-Israelite territory. What a spectacular three days of ministry. And now... As Jesus returns to the Jewish regions, the contrast between the reception of Jesus by the Gentiles who glorified the God of Israel and the reception of Jesus by the Jewish leaders is made crystal clear. As Jesus landed on the shore, the Pharisees and the Sadducees immediately came. Mark tells us in Mark 8.11 that they began to argue with him. Jesus steps off the boat and immediately they're starting to argue with him. What a contrast, right? seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Matthew tells us that they came to test him and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now this is quite a scene. Given the fact that Israel had never in their entire history been truly satisfied by any sign from heaven, they had never been so convinced by any display of God's mighty outstretched arm of power to serve the Lord with complete and total devotion. So what made them think that Jesus here would buy their thinly veiled effort not to confirm his identity so as to worship him, but to test him so as to disqualify him? What sort of miracle were they hoping to see? Were they hoping to see fire from heaven like they saw in the days of Elijah? Because that didn't stop the nation from worshiping idols, did it? Were they hoping that bread would fall from heaven like it did in the wilderness? Because that didn't inspire trust in the Lord among the entire nation. Were they hoping that He would make the sun stand still like He did for Joshua during the conquest of Canaan? Because that didn't do it either. Because the period of Judges comes right on the heels. A terrible time in Israel's history follows right on the heels, closely on the heels of these events. No, listen, no sign from heaven, no supernatural miracle, no clear and unmistakable work of his identity would have been enough to convince them. It never had been. This wasn't a real ask for proof. This was a confrontation and a commitment by the scribes and Pharisees to discrediting Jesus. And notice again who it is that approaches him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that the Sadducees confront Jesus. And they did so along with the Pharisees. And I don't want you to miss this, because these two groups hated each other. And here, in an effort to destroy Jesus, like they had done with the Herodians, the Pharisees aligned themselves with the Sadducees. The Pharisees here reveal themselves to be so opportunistic that they will clasp hands with their most hated enemies because they agree on this one thing. Jesus has got to go. Now listen, the Pharisees were the party of the working class. The Pharisees were the theologically and socially conservative. They were more in touch with the common person. They were zealous for tradition, zealous for the old days, zealous for the tried, the tested, and the true. They were the ones pressing for morality among the people, albeit all the while being hypocrites themselves. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the more upper-class, theologically liberal, and looser with Scripture group, even going so far as to simply ignore anything other than the first five books of Moses. They were the ones that held the seats of power, they were the culture-makers holding the levers of power in the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish leadership, and they were always ready to compromise for financial gain, and they were quite self-indulgent. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You could equate these two groups loosely to our political right and left. Now, I want you to imagine what it would take to bring these two factions together today. This is how much they despised Jesus. He didn't fit either of their expectations and rebuked both of them. And so here they are together, seeking to test him. It's no innocent ask. Remember, these men hate Jesus They had committed themselves to destroying Jesus and they're asking for another sign is a backhanded way of saying to Jesus, come on, come on Jesus, none of your works that you have done so far are sufficient to prove anything to us. So come on, show us a sign that will amaze us, impress us with the Spirit of God. The question I'd ask again is, what kind of sign were they looking for? What kind of sign could break through such hardened and rebellious hearts? Would seeing donuts rain from heaven? It doesn't matter how many signs and wonders are multiplied and performed before the eyes of the hard-hearted. They'll never be enough. Remember that when people say that to you as you're witnessing. Think about the crowds that are watching Jesus on this day. They're amazed by the miracles. And yet in the end, it's these same crowds who cried out at the instigation of the Pharisees for Jesus to be crucified as Pilate sought to set him free. And Jesus recognizes this, he knows this, and so he refuses to perform any more signs on this occasion. He didn't take the bait, he didn't go on the defensive, he simply said, no, the sign of Jonah is what you're going to get. He would provided enough evidence up to this point to convince anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear. He'd given enough evidence to authenticate his identity, but again, it's never enough to convince the hardened rebel. It's never enough to convince the one who's determined in their resistance to the Lord. Only the renewing, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit can overcome such a hardened, obstinate heart. And if you think about it, after Jesus had worked signs in front of them before, what did they do? They accused him of being in league with Satan. And then they slandered him to the crowds. But while there are a number of reasons that Jesus might not give or perform any signs, here's the reason he gives in 16, verse 2 and 3. This is the answer Jesus gives. When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In other words, these religious leaders were so worldly-minded, so focused on the issues of the earth that they couldn't or wouldn't see the reality of Christ right in front of them, even when it was so obvious. I mean, look, the sick are healed, the dead are raised, and they couldn't see what that meant. But the sky being red? Oh, we're all over that. They paid more attention to the weather patterns than the things of God. They paid more attention to the earthly cycles instead of heeding and discerning the acts of God in their midst. And Pastor John MacArthur, commenting on this text, exhorts those of us who are in many ways imitating the Pharisees and the Sadducees in this regard, those of us who know more about the patterns and the ways of the world than we do about the works and the signs of the Lord in our time. Listen to his words, and I quote, Modern society has many people with great insight and discernment about the things of the world but who have no comprehension of the things of God. Experts are able to predict whether the stock market will go up or down, whether gold or silver will become more or less valuable, whether the dollar will become stronger or weaker. Others can predict the direction of interest rates, fashions, the real estate market, and of import and export rations. Others can predict trends in education, sociology, morality, and government. But our society is short of those who know what God's plan for the world is, And that it is still the last time, the time of Messiah, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God escapes them. End quote. Of all people, the religious leaders in Christ's day, and those of us here and now who profess Christ to be our Savior and Lord, we ought to be primarily focused not on the movements of the world, but knowing the signs of the times. Understanding the works of God in our own times and seasons. And in order to do so, we must spend much time reading and studying the Word of God. He has revealed all that we need to know to navigate the choppy waters of our world in His Word. And we must all be committed and dedicated to knowing His Word. So that we can respond to and understand and see what He's doing in this world. But this, these guys ask for a sign. And in 16.4, Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Only a generation, Jesus is saying, that has forsaken the Lord seeks for signs. An evil, morally corrupt nation seeks for a sign. An adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, adultery here is a graphic and forceful and audacious word. It's used often throughout the Old Testament to describe the relationship between Israel and the Lord. You see, Israel was pictured as a, as betrothed and married to the Lord, and he pictured her as the Lord pictured her as his. He pictured himself as her true and rightful husband, and so to use this word right here indicated their unfaithfulness. The Lord used this most emotive and heartrending of illustrations, saying, and Jesus here says that Israel, you are like a promiscuous wife, offering herself to anyone and to everyone except her loving husband. The terminology harkens back to the prophets of old who consistently called upon unfaithful Israel to stop worshiping idols and return to the Lord. But they didn't, and the Lord sent them into exile as a result. And so Jesus, using this term with the Pharisees and the Sadducees standing right in front of him, he in essence declares them to be just as unfaithful to the Lord as those Israelites that brought the nation into exile for their idolatry. Only this type of generation seeks for a sign, especially given all the signs that Jesus has given. The situation was reminiscent of all the mighty, wonderful, and powerful works that God had done to save Israel, and yet, even though works were multiplied upon multiplied upon multiplied before their very eyes, they were never enough to satisfy the people or to bring them to full commitment to the Lord. And the interaction that's happening right here between Jesus, the King of Israel, and the religious leaders, it's playing out the same as it always has. Miracles are wrought. While some people might believe it and see, the majority of the generation refuses to believe and instead turns to someone, something other than the Lord. And so Jesus is not on this occasion going to give them any sign. He'd perform miracles in great quantity and in great quality already, so much that if their hearts were open to the truth in the least, all of these Sadducees and Pharisees would have fallen on their knees in repentance and faith, but instead they were blind. Jesus is not some sort of carnival sideshow who does tricks at the behest of rebels and sinful men. And given the slander for all they'd seen, really what, possibly, what possible reason would Jesus have for doing anything in their midst? Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. You remember, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, as we read in Jonah 1.17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, Jesus will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's a clear reference to the death of Christ, albeit in an ambiguous manner, pointer to the resurrection as well. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, and then it was spit out on land, like we read in Jonah 2.10, Jesus will also emerge from the grave after three days. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the great sign. And while there will be many who refuse to believe, even if, Jesus said, someone should rise from the dead... The resurrection for many has been the great sign. This is the sign that has overcome the belief of so many in our day and so many from the days of Acts all the way up to our day. As Peter preached to the men of Judea on Acts 2 saying, this Jesus, God raised him up and of that we are witnesses, we saw it. And this day, at this day, when Peter preached that message, 3,000 people turned to Christ in faith that day. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has been the sign that has overcome the unbelief of oh so many from that generation and every generation since. And it's for this reason that Jesus left the Pharisees and the Sadducees and said to his disciples in 16.6, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the disciples were initially confused by this statement because they had forgot to bring any bread with them. And so they took it literally, thinking that he was telling them, don't go and buy any bread or any leaven from the Sadducees and Pharisees. But what Jesus really meant was that they must watch and beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Meaning they must be vigilant and on the lookout for. They must be on guard against and cautious to and alert to their teaching. Because these Pharisees and Sadducees, they couldn't read the signs of the times. They should have understood the gospel. They should have shouted that gospel throughout Israel. They should have been going around saying, Now is the time. Repent and believe the gospel. The Christ is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. But they didn't. Instead, in their hard-heartedness and hypocrisy... And envy and pride and double-mindedness, the Sadducees and the Pharisees sought to turn the nation away from the Messiah in order to hold on to their favored status among the people. You and I must always be wary of those who claim to lead God's people, of those who claim to teach God's people, but they know or focus more on the world than God's Word and how it applies to our lives as believers in this world. The Pharisees and Sadducees were more concerned about earthly things than they were about the approval of God. They were more focused on conformity to their self-created standards than on single-minded devotion to God, His truth, and His righteous requirements. Beware, everyone in here, beware of all who like the Pharisees and Sadducees, counsel the people of God to do the opposite of His word who instead of pointing you in the direction of careful, meticulous obedience to God's Word, because He is the primary love of your life, point you and I in the direction of self-love and self-exaltation, of focusing on the world and its troubles. These are the works of the hard-hearted God-hater. And as you live as one of God's beloved children in this world, provided you repent of your sin and you have turned to Him in faith, turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, watch and beware of the leaven of teaching from anyone who might lead you in even the slightest degree away from Jesus Christ. And at the same time, as we remain alert, we must also remember to imitate Christ in this world. And you see, Christ was compassionate to everyone. Christ was compassionate to those that everybody else thought were dirty and vile and disgusting. So must we be in our imitation of Christ. We must proclaim and hold fast to the truth while showing compassion to those we might otherwise consider defiled and dirty, knowing that they need Christ just as much as we need Christ. And who knows, it might very well be that by your Christ-honoring compassion that they are led to the same point as the Gentiles were as Jesus ministered among them. It might be that they, with you, and the great cloud of witnesses, glorify the God of Israel. And in the end, isn't that what truly matters? that we honor and serve and love Jesus Christ and we bring as many people as we can to also honor and love and serve Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we praise you, thank you, honor you for your word and I thank you that you are so clear in your word with warnings and exhortations to us. We know that Your Word wasn't written directly to us, but it was written for our edification, for our benefit, for our uh, growth up into maturity and imitation of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we look at Your Word and we learn about compassion for those that we might not otherwise have compassion for, that we would be able to imitate Jesus Christ in this regard by the power of Your Spirit. I pray that in the power of Your Spirit that You would allow us to beware of those who would try to lead us astray. I pray that you would help us to be more focused on the signs of the times and what you are doing in this world and how we are to live in obedience to your word rather than what's going on in the world. I'd rather, please, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see the signs of the times and know about those more than about the color of the sky and the weather that's coming. Father, we need you. We can't do this on our own. The only way that this can happen in us is by your Spirit doing what you've promised he would do by convincing us of sin and righteousness. And so we, we depend wholly and fully on you for all of this. In the name of Christ our Savior, amen.